Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's one of the most perpetual themes on this show over the last few years, the compatibility or indeed the incompatibility between capitalism and the environment, uh, making sense of our environmental crisis in the context of economics. There is one camp uh, which believes that there is an incompatibility between capitalism, perhaps late stage, if that's the right term, uh, early 21st century capitalism, and addressing the planetary crisis, the environmental crisis. We've had lots of people on the show arguing that. Jason Hickel is very articulate. He was on the show. He has a book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Another very prominent uh, academic polemicist is Tim Jackson. He has a new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. But of course, there are many people uh, who believe that the Jackson... Hickel argument is incorrect. Uh, Andy McAfee, an old friend of mine from MIT, believes very strongly that if we're to save the environment, we have to reinvent capitalism, not do away with it. We're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, according to McAfee, if we want to get away with capitalism to address the environment. And of course, there are many corporatists of one kind or another. Bob Keefe, who represents a large corporate lobby group was on the show last year. He has a new book out, Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Uh, people like Keith believe that American business and large corporations actually have a key role to play in saving our planet. Our guest today on the show is a longtime sociologist. He's taught at Boston College for many years. According to Wikipedia, and I'm quoting here, his work focuses on the crises of capitalism, globalization, corporate power, American militarism, the cult of hegemony, the climate crisis, and the new peace and global justice movement. So it's probably not uh, that hard to guess that uh, my guest, Charles Derber, is in the first camp. He's there with guys like Jackson and Hickel. He's the author of many books, over 20 books. Many of you will have read his books. And he has a brand new book out. It's called Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. He co-wrote it with Surin uh, Mudlia. Uh, and he's joining us, Charles Derber, from Boston, from Boston College. Uh, Charles, have I positioned you right? Am I doing you justice or injustice, putting you in with guys like Hickel and, uh, and Jackson? Yes, I think you've done a good job with it. Um, I think what I've done in this book that's maybe a bit different than the the people that you're referring to is that I'm arguing that this is a book about extinction, broadly speaking, of which climate change is a, of course, a major um, major element. But the book also argues that um, there's a what I call a triangle of extinction, which hooks, it links together. Uh, capitalism, with climate change, but also with militarism, you know, in the age of, you know, weapons of mass destruction. And a lot of this book, and I would argue that climate change is part of a broader environmental crisis that includes, you know, the biodiversity crisis and uh, pandemics, which I 
examine in this book to some degree. So it's, it's a slightly broader um, view, and it argues that all of these um, potential extinction um, threats, um, which are very frightening and very real, um, can be remedied, but require going by the beyond the traditional idea that you know they can be managed within the current economic system or just by themselves. I think all of these crises need to be addressed simultaneously. I, I want to emphasize, um, given how much liberals are supporting current American militarism and say the war in Ukraine, that the book has a lot of material, both historically and today, on how the climate change crisis and the crisis of war are you know, incredibly intertwined. Um, climate change, the reliance on oil developed historically, um, you know, largely in World War One and World War Two, And um, of course, capitalism itself, um, the, the early robber barons in the United States really got capitalized by the people who financed the Civil War and um, then got um, in bed with government for uh, a major private part, you know, public partnership. So I guess I'd say, yes, I'm in the camp that you described, and um, a good deal of the book is about um, both the history and the prospects for dealing with climate change, but um, it, it puts it in a larger framework. Charles, let's try and define capitalism. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot. You know as much about it as anybody in terms of defining it. You work at Boston College. I assume you're paid a salary. You pay rent or mortgage. You buy your clothes. I, I have a business model at Keenon. I I have sponsors and advertising. We're all part of, for better or worse, a capitalist system. Um, what for you does capitalism mean? Well, particularly in regard to extinction, you know, it's a system that's driven largely by, um, you know, profit. And that's not just a matter of greedy individuals. It's, it's structural, meaning that almost any person, a you, you or me, who might be ideologically opposed to capitalism or questioning it, if we were sitting in a board of directors, would have to direct the company uh, or corporation to pursue profit. Well, one of the interesting things I think a lot of people don't know about is that in the 19th century, American capitalism before the Civil War, um, corporations were legally chartered as public entities where um, the fundamental legal mission and the accountability of the corporation was to the public, to legislators. And the idea was that the corporation was a public entity created by the people for the people. Profit could be made, but the fundamental test of the corporation, and it had to be its charter, we came up for review, particularly banks every 10 years or so in various states. They had to prove to the population that the company was serving the interests of the general population and not just um, making profit. Well, that, that, that sounds an attractive idea, um, uh, Charles, but this was during slavery. Did, did the slave owners of the South, did they justify their their businesses, and they were businesses, the selling of cotton off free labor, free and slave Well, you know, I argue that um, America grew up as two kinds of different intertwined system. The early American fascism was a slave state. It never really was. It was, it was highly integrated through the slave trade with the northern economy, but they were really two different models. So when you talk about slaveholders, 
I don't think of them as part of American capitalism. They're part okay, of. Okay, so you know, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole okay. because we could spend hours talking about it. But let's take then the northern economy. Are you suggesting that there was something better about the the pre-Civil War? Northern no, no. Well, I mean, economy I than I was, there is today. Yeah. I think you asked me, what do I see as the heart of capitalism? And why I raised that example is because I think the heart of capitalism is it's a system that is singularly directed toward profit making. And that's legally mandated as part of the fiduciary obligation of people who run the economy. And it means that all other, um, you know, interests have to be subordinated to profit. And that for me, you asked, what do I think defines capitalism? That defines capitalism. In that sense, externalities, which are essentially, you know, either positive or negative outcomes of market transactions um, that do not have to be accounted for by the um, producer, um, become irrelevant. They become social costs, um, in some cases benefit, but costs in the case of climate change and war, which are built into the system because they're so profitable, but they can't be really solved within the system itself because legally and politically and economically all the forces are you know coming together around the idea that profit will have to be pursued at the cost of any negative externality or cost to the society a couple of weeks ago i was at the dld um, circular economy event and we had a conversation with the president of the club de rome she made a similar argument i think in some senses in terms of doing away with the the stock market as the central edifice of of this capitalist system. So are, are you saying, Charles, that we could have an economic system where companies, corporations made a profit, but would be perhaps defined by post-capitalism or another word, another term to define our economics? Um, I mean, every step... You know, um, I think change, when you're talking about big systemic change, we in the book, we use the idea of abolitionism in the early 19th century in the United States as a movement really attacking a whole system was the American slave system. And we look at that as a historical model of how things change. And so if we were to move back toward a model of corporations um, that I was describing, where the charter said that the corporation was a public entity that had to serve the public over profit, that would be a step in the right direction. But there would still be enormous pressures um, if we're talking about a market economy and many other elements of capitalism that would still threaten you know, environmental death and military death. So I, I just mentioned the charter because I think it's not often discussed, the corporate charter as one of many possible changes that would be, you know, steps in the right direction. It wouldn't be enough. And I think we have to talk, when we're talking about dealing with the climate crisis, a much broader set of changes in capitalism that have to do with the whole idea of, um, and, you know, I think the neoliberal model of capitalism that Reagan brought in with uh, in the 1980s, and I'm sure you've talked about endlessly on your show, is the first step in moving away from neoliberalism, meaning the idea that everything has to be commodified and put on the market, all public investment and public goods have to be, they're seen as inefficient diversions of capital and have to be returned back into private capital and so forth. So 
I think there's just a whole range of, um, you have to, I mean, to me, the alternative to capitalism is what I call a system of public goods, where basically things are produced um, not for profit, but for the public interest. Um, and, you know, European models, have, you know, We're are not going to cite Denmark, I, Charles. We always get people coming. No, I would, I would just say in, like in yeah. I know a lot of people cite that. I think there are virtues of the Danish system compared to the American system. They have much broader social welfare, public goods. When I have um, Danish students in my class, I have a Copenhagen student in my class right now. The American students are blown away how much healthcare and education they don't buy and sell on the market and uh, they can get from for free. Um, the, so, yeah, I think there are Danish, Denmark is a step in the right direction, but it's far from a solution. Um, I just, but I think you have to recognize that capitalism is an enormously powerful and multifaceted system, and that change is likely to come through a range of incremental steps. Remember the the old idea of reformist reform versus um, radical reform. Um, the idea that a ref a radical reform is a reform that wedges the way open toward further. Uh, change in the system. A reformist reform is one in which, you know, change happens, which basically locks the system in more carefully. So I guess I would say the European model is, compared to the American model, is a, you know, it's a radical reform in the sense that it opens the door to certain further changes, but it's far from adequate to deal with the problems that we're, we're, we're talking about. In your, uh, Charles, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, your, your Wikipedia page, uh, you're described, your, your father was the New Deal economist Milton Derber, uh, and you used to, in those days, talk a lot about politics, economics with him. Are you nostalgic for the New Deal? Is what uh, FDR created in the 1930s, perhaps with the help of men like your father, is, is that a, a real alternative? Uh, I'm guessing that some sociologists and perhaps even Marx would argue that we can't go back in history. We can't return to something. And, and that kind of nostalgia is in some ways is as dangerous as, as idealizing the market. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's really important to know history. And the New Deal does look awfully good compared to neoliberalism, you know, I, I, I've in another book, I argued that there are domestic regime changes. The New Deal regime lasted from about 32 to 1980 in America and was replaced by the, what I call the second corporate regime following the Gilded Age. Um, I think that a Green New Deal, which is sort of the language that, you know, sort of progressives in the Democratic Party and some people on the left movements like, I think it's a really important idea because it puts before the public the idea that to deal with climate, I mean, you got to remember, um, Andrew, that in the United States, the view is almost overwhelmingly to either deny climate or to say that it can be solved, as Bill Gates keeps arguing, through technological change within, in fact, capitalism will speed the technological innovations and we'll have a green capitalism. So when you say, is the New Deal kind of just nostalgia, which is holding us back? Well, I think that learning, you know, using historical models to move forward. So is the Green New Deal just a revisiting 
you know, with some new words of the old New Deal? I don't think so. You know, I think that, you know, it sort of brings uh, certain kinds of public investments um, related to the environment as well as the labor force into much stronger focus. And um, the New Deal was, you know, you know, Roosevelt said that he was saving capitalism from itself. It was a very Keynesian kind of alternative, which, as you're suggesting, did not rip up the roots of the toxic forms of capitalism. It made it more tolerable during the Great Depression, and it brought a war that poured so much money into the economy that it floated the economy out of the Depression after World War II. But I agree with you that we need a much broader range of, um, and in the book, we talk about what we call the front for survival, uh, using a historical model of abolitionism as a very wide ranging kind of set of movements, which included radicals and moderates, um, you know, brought together a, a Frederick Douglass, a black, you know, former slave um, with a moderate white person like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, that sort of encapsulates our view that we outline in the book that it takes a very broad coalition, including reformist and revolutionary approaches that are moved because it, it's what's characterized in the past movements that take on very large systems. I think there's a general sort of sense of get real. There's no way you can change capitalism, live with Bill Gates, um, live with the green capitalists. And I think we just need a whole range of, uh, and I think they exist, you know, in the younger generation, more young people in the United States now say that they have a favorable association with the word socialism than with the word capitalism. And um, you know, about 90% of the American public say they're outraged by the power, the political power and the economic power of large corporations. So there does exist in the population a kind of resonance with the idea that capitalism is not working for ordinary people and that people are open, particularly young people, to a very different way of thinking about the economy. We are speaking with Charles Derber, very distinguished um, Boston College sociologist. He's co-authored a new book, Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. The book is out. Um, Charles, you brought up... Uh, the examples from history from the 19th century, um, abolitionism, emancipation, what can we learn from that? I know, as you suggested before the break, uh, we can find maybe, what is it, political organization, structural organization that suggests that this is possible? Because most people listening will probably in some ways agree with some of the things you're saying, but they'll say, well, this is all very well, but it's just not possible. How do you respond to that? Well, one is, it's just really important that you raise this question because we're not playing games here. I mean, if we don't deal with the threats of climate change and um, all the other environmental things I mentioned at the beginning and with um, militarism, we, we don't have endless time. You know, we're in a very urgent moment. So, I think on the one hand, it's incredibly important that people open their minds to the idea that in the past, we've been successful in seeing large systemic changes. And, you know, it doesn't have to happen by an armed revolution. I don't think that's the way it's going to happen in the United States. As I said, if you look closely at polls and how people think about economics and, the, you know, people think 
in the United States I'm referring to now, that there's just incredible you know, problems all over the economy. Most people are not getting paid. The levels of inequality are terrible. The, a lot of people are scared of climate and environment and realize that big oil companies are, making, are willing to you know, ride their profits to the end of the death of the planet. They feel the same thing about big pharmaceuticals and so forth. So there's a resonance in the population to saying there's something wrong with this, you know, corporate big money system. It's just really, I mean, Trumpism itself, um, you know, which has caught fire in the United States among a lot of working people um, is not so much in my mind because of cultural um, racism or other identity issues that are being plugged by um, culture warriors, but by the fact that the Democratic Party has largely, there is no party for these people who have been abandoned by the capitalist system, working people, which is the great majority of people. About half of Americans say they're $400 away from poverty. They're being hit by enormous amounts of, um, you know, health issues, mental health issues, uh, environmental disasters. You don't have to be a political genius to see there's something wrong with the way money has gone into our political system. So how does this change? I think by all kinds, I think what you learn from abolitionism is that it, it took immense numbers of different kinds of people, academics, um, workers, um, you know, former slaves and civil rights people, suffragettes, um, you know, education, novels. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who became sort of a spokesperson for abolitionism, was the most widely photographed person in the 19th century. So it takes an intense focus on culture. Um, and, you know, online movements, which are dangerous in many ways, also have a lot of possibilities. But, but uh, Charles, I take your point. We go back to the 19th century and the issues you talk about. Of course, there was the Civil War. There was the failure of Reconstruction. I mean, the, the politics of the 19th century, much of it was a profound failure, wasn't it? It was. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, it did end slavery. Um, it reinforced a new, you know, the coming of a new model of robber baron capitalism. Um, but, you know, as you say, I mean, history takes many different forms. We can't predict it, but we have no choice. I mean, the bottom line is that, and I think we make this case forcefully in the book, that these various kinds of extinction really can't be dealt with simply by technology or by um, you know, the kinds of Keynesian regulations that are popular in the Democratic Party and in much of Europe. And there is in the population, I, I can't emphasize this enough, um, Andrew, there is a real, and I see it among my students, um, there is a real hunger for some fundamental change. People realize, particularly young people, their lives are hanging in the balance. Their, their education, their futures are all at stake here. And so I think there is a resonance in the population. I mean, even Trumpism is an expression of, you know, it's a scream for saying, hey, look at my life and my needs and what's happening. And uh, I'm living in some sort of system where people like me have been just abandoned. So they, it exists. One of the problems is on the left is that identity movements around race and gender have often been so siloed that they don't reach out into these other movements. And I do think, and the book is full well, of yeah, that, 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 Explain what you mean by that, because I saw you uh, on the, uh, a show with Chris Hedges, another 
very articulate and uh, controversial figure on the American left, talking about the failings of the American left. And it's really a critique of, if not the American left, the American Democratic Party, the Hillary Clintons, the Joe Bidens of the world. Are, are you suggesting that there's a preoccupation with identity, Charles, or there's not enough of a focus on identity, cultural identity? No, I think that identity politics, when it's practiced, in what I call a siloed way, meaning where each identity group, whether it's a racial group or a gender group or an LGBT group um, or a disability group, I mean, they all are carrying important issues. But I think a politics, uh, progressive movements that are focused uh, sort of singularly on their own group or identity and are not looking at the way in which their problems are being, you know, rooted in larger economic and political and social forces that other groups share. And particularly, you know, one of the toxicities of identity politics, and I'm not, as you know, Andrew, I'm not one of many people now writing today about the serious, you know, problems with identity politics. Um, a lot of people in Britain, where you are right now, are writing very interesting, not, not so black and white, uh, the identity trap. I, I, I wrote a book called Welcome to the Revolution, which is a critique of identity politics. Um, but it's not an argument that there aren't, there's not racism or sexism. It's an argument that you're not going to solve these problems without looking at the way in which, just as we're talking about climate change, the greatest danger, I think, for climate change is thinking that we can solve this problem within our current you know, functioning economic or not so well functioning economic system by changing technology. And the identity movements are draining progressive energy away from the kind of economic uh, and environmental issues that are intertwined and are tied to race, as we talk. Um, and and so, yeah, I think identity politics, well, I'm very ecumenical about politics, meaning that I'm for all kinds of different forms of movements. I do think that the DEI kind of politics, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity is turning into an obstacle and driving many white workers toward the far right and climate denialism and so forth. So, yeah, I do have, and, you know, talk about some in this book, a very strong critique of the kind of identity politics. I say we need a kind of universalizing politics, by which I mean a politics where people connect their own group's issues with the larger class and economic issues that are you know, afflicting people of all, you know, workers of all races, people of all genders, and so forth. So um, I do think that the reconstruction of a kind of class politics is, which has disappeared pretty much in the United States, has really been co-opted. If you want to understand why people love Trump, a good part of it is working people who feel their class interests, and they're right, they're absolutely right, have been abandoned by both parties. We have two corporate parties. We're talking with Charles Derber, the co-author of Dying for Capitalism, a very controversial and interesting new book about economics and the environment and our broader political system and the need for profound structural change. I want to remind everyone that if you want to read an interesting quarterly publication which addresses a lot of these issues, Liberties does that, a quarterly, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. They're one of the sponsors of our show playing a role in the little capitalist system around Keenon. We're going to run a short video on them, and then we'll be back with Charles Derber, the co-author of Dying for Capitalism. Don't go away, anyone.
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with the great Charles Derber, the co-author of Dying for Capitalism. Really interesting new book. Before the break, Charles, you were talking about new political alliances, new ways of doing politics. Uh, You wrote a really interesting piece uh, a few years ago for Salon on another very distinguished Boston-based leftist, Noam Chomsky, on the need for the left to find common ground with evangelical Christians. We've had some conversations about that, particularly when it comes to the environment and people living outside the cities. Do you think that the issue of the environment could be one of the bridges uniting the traditional left, the diverse working classes in urban America with uh, the white working class outside the cities? Um, I think so. I mean, the rural America is dying of all kinds of environmental and economic issues. Um, the, um, you know, you, you, you talked about not romanticizing the New Deal, but a lot of the New Deal tried to reach into the countryside with some success and build new energy systems and new sources of transportation, new agricultural and land policies. I think that if framed you know, the, envir- the environmental movement um, is already finding traction in, you know, out west in Native American land. Um, I think this is playing out in with the working class around, you know, um, the fear that, you know, that the Trumpists are saying that, well, the auto strike that's going on is simply an effort to move labor south to, you know, so-called environmentally friendly electric cars which are made in non-union shops and you know the the current head of the UAW who's a very refreshing figure Sean Fenn um, is saying that we're we're definitely you know allying to organize those southern plants and you can extrapolate that to say that an organized labor movement led by a guy like this are going to and there are a number of you know powerful socialist labor movements in both in the Rust Belt and among nurses, teachers, and professionals, who are, um, many of them are in the Midwest or in the Plain States and are reaching out to agrarian, again, just to use a historical model, um, one of the most radical movements in the United States were the agrarian populace um, who had some racism and some cultural conservatism, no doubt, but who put put it mildly, mildly, but, you know, there were, alliances. There were black populists. Um, Eugene Debs, the socialist labor person, was tied in with those movements. In 1892, they created the People's Party. I don't know if you've seen it, Andrew, the um, the, the, the Omaha platform that they put out in uh, 1892 was one of the most radical. You were talking about Wall Street and finance. That was a bunch of agrarian um, farmers who had set up their own educational you know, lecture circuits and village by village, and then came out as a national party, somewhat aligned with labor and people like Debs, who was an outright socialist. 
um, ran for president from jail later in 1920. But the, the Omaha platform of 1892, of this People's Party, was calling for public ownership of, you know, credit, finance, uh, and so forth. It was one of the most radical challenges to American capitalism. It was right in the heart of Robert Barron, you know, Rockefeller, Morgan, you know, consolidation of power. Um, now, is there a movement on the left, people like Michael Lind, yourself, um, uh, Frank, Thomas Frank, are there labor historians, economists, political thinkers, scientists who are beginning to to rethink what exactly the left can be and should be in the America of the early 21st century? I think so. I mean, not enough. And, you know, the movements are weak and the, the academy has been, you know, it always reflects where the money is. So the university is being corporatized and, you know, in my own discipline, sociology, that's moved toward where the money is, which tends to be a kind of scientizing um, you know, making everything quantitative and sort of moving away from the historical and more critical forms. So I wouldn't say it's a tsunami of such things. On the other hand, somebody like you who is aware of many different writers and thinkers and of the movements that are emerging, um, I think there is a renaissance of this because um, just the, the needs are so great and the, the systemic failures are so clear. That's why I think we're seeing, we are talking before about the spate of new critiques of identity politics, which has taken over so much of the left in the United States. And the rise of all kinds, I mean, this interest in the summer of strikes right now, where you're seeing more yeah. workers on strike since 1963. There are a whole pot, bunch of them yet to be unleashed of these strikes. And the fact that Biden, who is a very centrist president, is walking in picket lines. Um, I think it is returning interest to these things. I think people realize that the presidential election is going to be decided by how working people vote. And so there is a shift that I'm seeing both in the intellectual world and on the ground in politics. Like on my campus, there had never been much of a labor thing. Now there's a fairly strong um, sort of socialist labor kinds of student groups organizing. Undergraduates as well as graduate students are organizing for um, you know, unions in the university itself, which is a very, they're paying $100,000 a year in a lot of places in the United States to go to school, including at Boston College, which is just morally obscene. So I think you're seeing restlessness and you're seeing it in rural America. I mean, you're seeing people, a lot of it is being expressed on the right, simply a reflection of the vacuum of the left going in. But even the Democratic Party has begun putting a lot of money into rural organizing and, um, uh, you know, transportation systems, new agricultural things tied to, you know, incredibly urgent things related to climate about changing the food system and our agricultural system. You know, we have here, um, you know, a strong student movement which links students here to organic farming and, um, you know, sort of practitioners in the Boston, around Boston, where there's a link being made between students and um, ecologically sustainable farming practices. And much of that literature um, is being done by people who have a very critical view of the economy, are looking at the way in which a different kind of, you know, more sustainable food system can be tied, an agricultural system can be tied to a much broader reconfiguring of 
the notion of employment and, you know, with consumers coming out from the city, beginning to pick their own food, you know, spending an hour a week doing that. I don't see that as a massive thing right now, but it's just one of multiple forms by which new constituencies and new bridges between urban and rural, between upper middle class students and very, you know, working class farmers, small farmers are making connections. I just think we should be open to all kinds of things. There isn't one, you know, one singular movement, but when you get a, a kind of tsunami of these smaller associations and, and you know, you, well, you talked about Andrew in terms of the ferment in the intellectual world of people noticing both activists and my co-author Suran is a South African who is edits the journal Socialism and Democracy in the United States. And he's out with Demo DSA, the Democratic, Democratic Socialist Association. That's, grew, that's grown enormously in the last few years. Mm, there's so. a lot. Yeah, I mean, we've got to end in a minute. Um, we'll have to get you back on the show, Charles. There's a lot more to discuss. You lived through the 60s. Talk about tsunamis. That was the last real tsunami, at least on the left. What If what you're saying is true, there seems to be some evidence, certainly the labor movement and the centrality of labor in all this is, I think you're absolutely right, extremely important. Um, what should progressives learn from the 60s? And are there politicians in Washington, D.C. today who reflect this? I mean, some people talk about Bernie Sanders, others about OE, uh, AOC. Are you... Um, are you, do you have any degree of faith in the people on the left in Washington, D.C. today? Well, Andrew, I just want to really underscore what you said about the importance of work, you know, attention to labor and work and economic issues. And so do I like what Bernie Sanders is doing? I mean, Bernie's a guy who's been saying the same thing since he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont. But I mean, he really believes it. I mean, I think his mind is just, and I think it's, He's got a script there that is authentic. And as you were suggesting, it's really, and in the American context in particular, it's incredibly important that you have a prominent guy in the Senate who is now head of the budget committee there, or, you know, very influential in, and who is talking nonstop about economic labor working issues, the abandonment of workers and how desperately important it is to bring working people of all races and genders into the Democratic Party, into a progressive agenda around capitalism. So, yeah, I like Bernie. Um, you know, it's not like he's going to... Um, you don't you know, sound like you love him, though. You like him, but don't love him. Well, I'm going back to what you said earlier, you know, that there, there's not a singular movement. The movements are weak. The 60s were a much more powerful movement. Again, I would speak, you know, back to your own words there, we don't want to romanticize the left, any you know, the 60s left, which ultimately Straight. failed um, any more than we want to. And into an SDS and a... Right. You know, I mean, they, but they were an important force and it did, you know, help give rise to a whole set of new movements against nuclear power, to feminism, to the, you know, the first Earth Day was right at the end as the right, new left yeah. was collapsing. So, I mean, if you look at the way movements come, they come in these historical cycles and they fail, but they give rise to a whole bunch of other, you know, emergent movements that can arise. And I think Does we should have... need a political voice, um, uh, Charles? We've got, uh, there's a really interesting new book coming up from the New York Times economist, um, David Leonard, I think you'd enjoy it, where, where he makes 
the collapse of the labor movement the the heart of the rise of neoliberalism I and mean, he's not the first or the last doing yeah. it, it no i like very, what he's yeah he's good he does it in a very elegant way but in his book he makes robert kennedy really central uh, and Robert Kennedy was the last major, perhaps, American politician who recognized the importance, if not of populism, of talking to ordinary people, and then the Democratic Party lost that ability. Is there a need for somebody within the party to begin to reinvent the language of populism on the left? Absolutely. I mean, populism has been appropriated by the right. So whenever people think of populism, they think of, um, you know, Trumpism or something. But populism, you know, as I said, the 1890s version of populism was revolutionary around many economic, financial class issues. Um, and I'm, Andrew, I completely agree that we need voices in Congress who are really speaking out around um, issues of the economy and, you know, and structural, you know, systemic, not just reform of a particular measure, but really for looking at the big picture of the economy. Bernie is appealing because he, d he doesn't offer many solutions, but he, he talks about the problem in a way that ordinary people can connect with. I'll just remind you that in 2016, in the election for, against Trump, between Hillary and Trump, ultimately, he was rejected by the party leadership, not by the workers in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio, who voted overwhelmingly for Bernie on the Democratic primary. So I think there is, for if you have those voices you were mentioning, you know, voices from Democratic Party and from other prominent people. I don't think that Robert Kennedy was by far strong enough in that voice, but I think you're right that those voices in the Democratic Party and all over the, you know, society, wherever elites can speak up for these class labor issues, they're fundamental in this current upcoming election in pulling enough people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you know, Wisconsin away from what's really an incredibly dangerous election coming up. Final question, um, and, I, and I have to ask this because there are going to be a lot of people thinking it, Charles, watching, and I'm sure you deal with this question all the time. You, you said you're against green capitalism. Maybe end by explaining why. Some people would argue that Elon Musk, certainly not everybody's favorite capitalist or favorite human being, has done a great job with Tesla, with electronic vehicles, with popularizing an alternative to, to gasoline cars. What's wrong? Well, I'm not a, with yeah. uh, Charles with with greed with with Elon Musk's. You've mentioned Bill Gates, but Gates is a, a philanthropist now. Musk is an entrepreneur. He's a green capitalist. What's wrong with that? Oh God, how much time do we have? I well, mean, I, 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 I give you three <laughs> minutes. Finally, yeah. you can. I mean, there's so much wrong with whatever you're thinking about. He, three or four minutes far, of what's he's wrong with, with He's taken over. You know, a good part of social media. He, the danger of green capitalism is that it's not going to be very green for very long. I mean, the putting together electronic, I, first of all, I don't think that technology is irrelevant. I think they think that technology plays an important role in moving us out of the climate crisis. But green capitalism is a different story altogether because you can have technology with Elon Musk, who is introducing electric cars as a way to make money and to consolidate capitalism to build you know he doesn't really believe cap you know capitalism is going to save america he wants to build spaceships you know with his spacex program to colonize other planets for capitalism for all the reasons we talked about before 
the green capitalism is diverting people seriously dangerously horribly diverting people from looking at thinking that technology milton free i'm sorry uh, tom friedman is another voice like that where you know technology emerges as the primary cause and the primary solution that is a such a traditional capitalist way of thinking about it and it diverts the population and the public from realizing that they have to think about these larger um, economic issues and systems that we've been talking about all through this conversation technology is a good thing when it's guided in the direction that a system can use it to change the fundamental way we relate to the environment when you're in a system which is going to keep producing as much consumer goods as meant plunder as many resources you know expand out using the military which is the most prominent driver I, I, we didn't talk about this but it's incredibly important the military is by far the most prime the most important driver of climate change um, and of course climate change is driving militarism the Pentagon calls climate change the number one threat um, so they the militarism and climate change feed each other and they both feed capitalism you know um, so I think that the, the danger of green capitalism is not the danger of you know green technology it's the idea that green technology is, is that green technology saves capitalism it doesn't you use green technology to build a very different kind of economic system